Hey, Mockingcasters, RJ here. If you're anything like me, then uh, Mockingbird is an almost essential part of your life. Um, not essential in the sense you can't live without it, but essential in the sense that life is so much better with it. How wonderful it is to be constantly reminded about God's grace, his goodness, his love, his presence with us in the midst of lives, which honestly can be rather hard and painful and confusing. Um, and I'm so grateful for all the emails you send us uh, telling us about how much all the ministries of Mockingbird mean to you, from the podcasts, the publications, uh, the website, the conferences, all that Mockingbird does. I'm coming to you today, actually, because we are asking for your financial support. We really need your support. Um, if you're wondering how much to give, um, anything will be appreciated. But I will say a $15 a month recurring donation uh, will bring with it a free subscription to the Mockingbird Journal, which is absolutely fantastic. So if you want to give, you can go to mbird.com support, or there'll also be a link in the show notes. Um, but thanks so much for listening, as always. Thanks for being part of this amazing community, and thanks in advance for your financial support. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Somehow, we've come to the end of another season. This is our last episode before taking a summer break. And, I mean, how did we get to almost June? I, I kind of can't believe it. But, yeah, lots to talk about today. And I wanted to hear, first of all, though, how, how are you guys doing? As, as our, My boys are both still in school as we we're recording this. We are not yet to summer yet I know that plenty of people around the, the country are, but what's the vibes out there in Condon and Heyman land? Well, I mean, we're moving, so it's crazy right now, but the kids are done with school. They're going to camp. You know, it's going to just be one of those summers that's insane. Yeah, I, it's just, it's wild. I did want to give a little church shout out, though. On Ooh. Sunday morning, we went to St. Thomas College Station with the Reverend Corey Wright, and we have some listeners at St. Thomas College Station. It was so Ooh. sweet. Just like people came up and told me they were fans Go and loved the podcast. I know. And they handed out, because it was Pentecost, everyone got a little Storymakers Holy Spirit sticker at the door. So it was like toddlers got a Holy Spirit sticker, old men got a Holy Spirit sticker. It was amazing. Anyway, so <laughs> I love really... their Holy their Holy Spirit sticker that looks a little like an emoji. Like yeah, kind of, it's got a, it's um, it's very it's, cute. So anyway, I just on a really positive note, I could complain about moving, but that was such a sweet experience. Sarah, That's... you can complain about moving all you want. Moving is the I mean, absolute it's, worst. It's pretty bad. So yeah, but we'll yeah. get through it. We'll get on the other side of it. Yeah. I cannot believe the lots. I've always, it's going to take a bit of a mental shift because I always think of Sarah in Houston. I yeah. mean, it's, it's going to be Sarah, Sarah in Nashville. Sarah in Houston as well. Yeah. So I'm starting to realize the things I'm really going to miss, uh, 
beyond just the Tex-Mex, which is going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to hear that they have good Tex-Mex in Nashville because they don't. Um, I think just the, like, the interstates and the way that everyone travels on them, the flashiness of the city is, like, really fun. Like, there's just stuff that, like... I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to miss my girlfriends here got me this like beautiful state of Texas necklace and this like very shishi dress that's like this orangey coral color pop collar the whole thing but on the sleeves are navy stars for the Astros and I was like I love Houston. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. That's uh, that's very Texan. It was, yeah. We really miss Houston. It's Houston's a great great city. It There's is. so many good things about it, yeah. Yeah. But what's happening cool. with you? Arch? Yeah, you got one going to college, one going to what grade is Marshall going into? He'll be in first grade. <laughs> oh my he gosh. has two and a half days left of kindergarten. <laughs> Ooh. We're good. We're, we're no, we are really good. Things are really good. I think we're also in this weird space you get when your kids go away to college where you're really excited and you're really proud. And you're also grieving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's really hard to see your your kids go. And my wife was was <laughs> getting teary recently, and she's like, "I didn't do this with Jackson." I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like, you totally did this with our oldest for like two months." And I, I I gave her a couple examples. She's like, "Oh yeah, I guess I did." I'm like, "Yes, you definitely yeah did." You know, you're so we're so proud of Spencer. He's gonna have such a great time. Um, he's such a good kid. We love him to death. But it's so hard to feel like you're um like they're like they're leaving because they are you know we're, yeah. pro- we're gonna see him now you know four or five six times a year as opposed to every morning and every evening and i mean we're just we're also hopefully in the process of moving which has been a very anxiety filled protracted you know it, at least where we are in central Virginia, it's very competitive and all the things people say about the housing market. And you just get so sick of hearing people talk about real estate, especially at our stage, my stage in life. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into this process and it's even worse than what people, you know, had prepared (laughs) you for. Dave can't find a house y'all. So that's why he's like this. Luckily interest rates are low. So we're good. Yeah, let's. You know, let's <laughs> I basically have a, a a prohibition on people asking me about it. I said, you know, I'm I'm sorry, you cannot ask me about it. Like I'm just, it's not. It's like talking, asking someone how their book is coming if they're writing a book. It's like it's a no go zone. Sorry, it's it's. I'm gonna act like you didn't say that. Yeah. Um, Right, <laughs> but you know, summer with three boys at the age of mine uh, is always something to be looked forward to. And For sure. We're in the midst of sort of end of the year concerts and things like that, and um, you know, just prepping for a few little trips. Nothing too big planned, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm sort of excited to see what the next couple months hold. And of course, with Mockingbird, we're in the middle of this fundraising cycle. We, you've heard our pitch, and I hope people do uh, consider giving to Mockingbird. We could, we could use it, and it's sort of a segue into this. I mean, we really use it genuinely. We need it into this first, or a couple of articles about tipping. Now, I don't know about you. I, there, there was a meme that had an iPad sort of in a stand, and it said, you know, if I see one of these, I know I'm about to get asked to tip for something I've never tipped for before. Hmm. You know, like those stands that people do. And you know, the, the risk in talking about this subject is, is considerable because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's close to the bone for folks. But there's some, some articles out there. Uh, a woman named Rachel Wolf wrote two of them for the Wall Street Journal about why tipping prompts 
are suddenly everywhere. This is what she writes. She says, tacking a 20% tip on top of a $4 croissant is one thing, but now tip requests are showing up for locksmiths, baby formula, and wedding dresses. A range of business owners adding the option for gratuity to transactions say these non-traditional tips help them stay afloat in a competitive job market. Moreover, they say that the revenue generated from gratuity can help them avoid raising prices further. Consumers appear to be skeptical, but are paying for now. Will Fisher took the same road trip from Salt Lake City to Spring Lake, New Jersey, two years in a row. While he didn't notice tip prompts at gas station mini-marts last winter, he saw them in about a dozen places he popped into for power bars and chips this time around. I just wanted an energy drink, not a whole moral crisis, says Fisher, (laughs) who does underwriting for a financial tech company. He says he feels guilty saying no when the cashier is watching, so he tacks on an extra dollar about half the time. But this is a gas station off I-80 in the middle of nowhere, not a fancy restaurant in New York. Samantha Cassandra, who owns a children's boutique in Woodstock, Georgia, says she understands the pressure small businesses are under, but that it's the owner's job to pay employees, not the customers. She was especially surprised to encounter an option to leave an extra 5 to 15% while checking out at online retailer X Plusware this spring. The request offended her enough that she passed on the $100 sparkly romper she was about to buy to wear to a Taylor Swift concert. I would expect them to build the cost of their life. People can what? see Sarah's face so right hard. now. <laughs> I would expect them to build the cost into their prices and would rather pay for shipping than this phantom tip where you have no idea where it's going. Tipping researchers and labor advocates say so-called tip creep is a way for employers to put the onus for employee pay onto consumers rather than raising wages themselves. Companies say tips are an optional thanks for a job well done. Just one 26-year-old who works in public relations in New York City, who refused to be named, said just the prompt in general is a bit of emotional blackmail. He skipped the tip. So, again, the uh, risk of sounding like a stingy so-and-so is significant. But I do notice that I'm getting Christians asked... Christians are noted for their wonderful tipping. As you know, we have a reputation <laughs> for being very generous tippers. Yeah, whenever, tippers. whenever, whenever so. a waiter see a big church group come in, they all fight for that table. Totally. So. Yes, that's yeah. what I yeah. <laughs> One of the things that it thought to, to me is that, that the word gratuity is such a wonderful word, I think. I think it's a gospel kind of word. I think it's a Christian... I think it is, you know... The irony aside, I think it is kind of a Christian word, gratuity, something that is sort of over the top, uh, abundance, and, and, and not, um, not given in exchange for something. It's sort of an expression yeah. of gratitude. I love it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why this sort of cynicism about tipping, which really is creeping into you know, people's talking like, well, hold the phone. Why am I, who am I tipping? Why am I tipping them? All I did was pick up, you know, an, an order that I'd placed through an app and, and where's this going? It, it makes me sad that people are getting cynical about tipping, but have, have you noticed this at all? Does it connect with you? I mean, I definitely have noticed it. I love to tip people. I think like people are struggling, especially if they have some of these jobs that, you know, they can turn a screen and you can give a tip. And, and I feel like I have the ability to give, you know, 15% on a $5 purchase. So, I mean, I do, I don't mind it. What it makes me think of really though, is there's this little restaurant on campus at Rice 
called, I think it's called Little HTX, and it's very, like, hip, and the people who work there are, like, you know, tattooed and pierced, and it's, like, a whole vibe when you go in there to get stuff, and they can be a little surly, and I always think that is a little bit of a challenge, and um, I'm in this place all the time. This is where I would do coffees or lunches or whatever with students, and no matter, I decided no matter what I was getting and how much the bill was, I would always tip 25% mm. because it's church money, baby. And <laughs> it's all tipped. It's all tipped already. Yeah. It's and just they, would, they would often say, especially when I come in, I buy a hundred dollars worth of food for students, right? Like I'd take them all out to lunch there or something. And I would hit the 25% and they'd go, oh my gosh, thank you. And I'd say, oh no, this isn't my money. This is church money. And it became this like joke with me and them. Like they knew the church lady was coming and they knew they were going to get some church money. And I just felt like for this group of people who didn't seem like they had a real great relationship with religion, it was such a beautiful way to like be light, but also be generous mm. And, and also I have this whole group of like young people at Rice who are probably going to make good gobs of money. And I wanted them to see like, these are situations where we can be generous and gracious. So it doesn't bother me. I mean, I guess if I were on a website and they asked me to tip, I'd be like, this is weird. But like I, the rest of it, no, it doesn't bother me. Mm. These people are making minimum wage at best generally. Yeah. I hear you. RJ, what do you think? I, but uh, yeah, I don't mind tipping either. I, I, like tipping, I think I have not experienced the opportunity to tip in non-food related venues. So that's like, I mean, I guess he was, I guess technically the gas station was a food related venue, but it is always, I wrestle with it a little bit when it's like counter service versus, you know, waiter, waiter, waitress service. It's like, am I tipping someone for just standing there and taking my order when I'm coming back to the counter to pick it up? Like, I don't know. And then also the thing I've noticed is interesting to note, you know, now you've got these pre-options. It's like, do you want to 15%, 18%, 20%? Although some restaurants I've seen, it's actually starts at 18. So it's like, are you going to give 18, 20, or 22%, you know? And I used to like sort of doing the math myself and kind of rounding it up. I will say since the pandemic hit, I feel like I've been a more generous tipper because I feel like so many of these restaurants and people were really struggling just to stay open. And I'm like, if you're coming to work because you've been deemed an essential personnel, you know, and you're kind of risking your health and maybe even your life to like come to work. The least I can do is give you a generous tip because I'm too lazy to, you know, cook for myself uh, tonight or whatever. So I don't mind that. I guess the flip side of it is I do think corporations, and this is maybe not true of small businesses, but to some degree, you know, corporations exist to squeeze out as much profit as they possibly can in every way that they possibly can. Some corporations, some sectors have been making record profits. Like there was even an, an article this morning about how, you know, one of the reasons inflation is still high is because corporations are padding their prices because they're trying to guard their profit margin, which I, which I understand. So, and at the same time, it's on consumers because at the end of the day, you're going to shop where it's cheapest. So I don't know. I guess you just, you know, like I said, it's a moral quandary and you do your best to make the best decision you can in the moment. But I certainly don't envy people who are you know, making very low wages in retail or food service. Like yeah, but that's they're a, that's just, a tough just, gig. just FYI, they're being asked to tip 
to the same extent that you are. So it's, right. it's, it's yeah, not exactly. like, exactly. it's not like right. it's they actually probably are much more generous tippers. They probably are much more generous tippers. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it strikes me as a couple different things. I mean, I love Seinfeld and there's a lot of, uh, t- because it's a New York centered show, there's a lot of hemming and hawing in that about tipping. And George always wants to know, well, you know, the time that he, you know, picked up the big salad, he wants to make sure that people know that he gave a big tip or a small tip and he wants to get credit for the tip. And I think that there's something, one of the, one of the things that actually does go on here, when he talks about emotional blackmail, that's too strong of a term, but it does create an extra kind of psychological layer to all of this and where you're thinking about it and you're wondering, is this person going to be mad at me? And like, how do I feel today? What's going on with my own finances? I think, I think there is an element to which I judge people if they don't tip, you know, maybe you do too. Like, and, and I all of assume just to know like what they're, why they're not tipping. Oh, I and, broke up with a guy once. Yeah. Yeah. Well it, it, you see it yeah. and it adds another wrinkle. It's like when, when COVID was like when, uh, you know, kids had to wear masks in schools and I always, I always felt so badly for like the fourth grade boys that I was parenting because it's like, you're just adding this other layer of ways that you can get in trouble as if it wasn't hard enough to behave as a, as a fourth grade boy. So I, I, I don't know. I see it from a perspective of like greasing the wheels of society. Like I believe in tipping. I believe in paying people for things that they don't deserve for tipping people big who've given terrible service. I I think that like my brother, John is always like, I'm a grace tipper. Like if they give me bad service, I'm going to give them a bigger tip. And like, like don't tell anyone. (laughs) John. And I think that there's something to that. I mean, are we going to take our faith seriously or not? Does it only apply on Sundays or is this a whole way of sort of viewing the world? And yet I also know there's been times when like I've split the split the tip with other people like couples at a restaurant and like one of us gives a lot more than the other one and you're like oh damn and how performative has it become and and all of these questions they're very like they are moral questions they are righteousness questions and they are gratitude questions don't we as Christians I think we want people to give out of gratitude not out of blackmail or sort of pressure or like we're watching you and yet I still think it's impossible. It's getting so hard to afford any kind of life right now. Well, especially for people who work jobs that they're working on tips, right? Like we can all afford a life. So we can, you know, so I, I, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is like, why are we uncomfortable? Right. And I, in these moments, and I wonder if it's because, you know, I hate to sound like an old lady, but in this modern age, actually don't mind it in this modern (laughs) age. Um, we don't have to think like we're not reading books like we used to. We're not thinking about other people's lives. We're not running into people. You know, I think about my aunt and uncle living in this really small town in Mississippi and like constantly interacting with impoverished people who are dear friends, you know, and we don't usually have that existence now. And so when we interact with someone, right, who works at the counter of a gas station, which sounds awful, we suddenly have to think, for just a second, our brain thinks, what are their lives like? Like for just a second. And that's such an uncomfortable question that I think that it's like this repulsion that comes from it. How dare you ask me to think about another person? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I don't want to think about them. I just want to get an energy drink. And it's like, well, <laughs> tough. <laughs> that's true. I, do you know, I've always thought about tips as being kind of secret. Like I, like 
I don't show oh, other people RJ, what I so tip. Christian. And I see, I'm serious. Like at most, the person, the the waiter or waitress might know. They might know, but I right. bet a lot of the times they're not even really looking at it, and all they know is like the extra money oh, they, they get at they the know. end of the night. <laughs> you know, they, they may or may not be, especially now that's all electronic and you're not even signing anything. Like I always thought it. I mean, I hate to bring Jesus into it, you know, <laughs> but when he, but when he talks about please, please, please doing your acts of righteousness in secret, I mm-hmm. always felt like tipping was kind of secret, and it also made me think. You know, we're probably going to do like a capital campaign here at church pretty soon and maybe do some buildings. And one question that's come up recently is, are we going to offer naming opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know, on buildings that we're going to build? And we haven't made up our mind about that yet. But to me, it's like, you know, that's also another opportunity for sort of a secret act of righteousness or a very... Unsecret, right? <laughs> righteous. Right. Well, you know? the the, the, the and, classic is the curb your enthusiasm. Where remember, there are two wings of the museum are, are donated, and one is oh God, Ted Danson yes. donates one, but anonymously, and Larry yes. David donates one, but doesn't know you could do it anonymously. And it yes. gets to the actual reception, and everyone knows that Ted Danson gave the other wings, but because he did it quote unquote anonymously, <laughs> he gets all this credit. Like, don't you think it's amazing that he got it? And he's like, well, That's hold so on. I, he's like, I didn't even know you could do it anonymously. <laughs> and it, it just reveals that he'd done it for the credit and that it completely backfired. And then Ted is like so soaking in all of the praise. And it is so it is one of the funniest. Ep- I showed it in a, in a theological talk to sort of talk about, you know, the motivations we have for the things we do. And it just. So that's a, so any donor that asks for a naming right, I'll be like, just watch this episode of Curve Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> let's, let's do you want to be Ted app. Danson or Larry David? <laughs> or do you want to be Larry David? Let's talk about this for a sec. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. What the, all the employers say is that this is probably going to be only, even more of a thing. You know, it's mm. not going to be less of a thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think about, by the way, is having been raised in for part of my life in Europe and how confusing American tipping culture is for anyone who wasn't brought up here because there's a lot of this... I mean, when you want to talk about little L law, there's a lot of this sort of, well, you pay this, but you actually pay this. And if this happened, then you do this. And people are like, well, why don't you just pay what they ask you to? It's confusing. And from a European perspective, I've, I've watched, remember that time in it, the New York City restaurants tried to eliminate tips one time and just raise their mm-hmm. prices and it didn't work because people were just culturally, they didn't know what to make of it. And so people just started tipping on top of whatever they were charged. Anyways, it's a way in to talk about uh, what, what we believe. And here's another way in from Adam Gopnik in the New York Times. What we lose when we push our kids to achieve. Now he draws a line between achievement and accomplishment. And there are quite a few sort of spiritual religious overtones. Uh, achievement. Well, he, he starts it this way. He says, when I was 12, I disappeared into my bedroom with a $40 folk guitar and a giant book of Beatles songs with elementary, large type, easy chord diagrams to follow. I had no musical gift and no real musical training. And my fingers stung as I tried to press down on the strings without making them buzz. Nonetheless, I worked my way through Rain and Love Me Do and finally Yellow Submarine and discovered by myself the matchless thrill of homemade musical harmony. No one asked me to do this, and surely no one was sorry the door was closed as I strummed and stumbled along after the nirvana of these simplified songs. But the sense of happiness I felt that week, genuine happiness rooted in absorption in something outside myself, has stayed with me. 
Now, here's the distinction he draws. He says, achievement is the completion of the task imposed from outside, the reward often being a path to the next achievement. Accomplishment is the end point of an engulfing activity we've chosen, whose reward is the sudden rush of fulfillment, the sense of happiness that rises uniquely from absorption in a thing outside ourselves. Our social world often conspires to denigrate accomplishment in favor of the rote work of achievement. All our observation tells us that young people particularly are perpetually being pushed toward the next test or the best grammar school, high school, or college they can get into. We invent achievement tests designed to be completely immune to coaching, and therefore we have ever more expensive coaches to break the code of the non-coachable achievement test. Oh, yeah. Those who can't afford such luxuries are simply left out. We drive these young people toward achievement, tasks that lead only to other tasks, into something resembling not so much a rat race as a rat maze, with another hit of sugar water awaiting around the bend. But the path to the center, the point of it all, never made plain. Self-directed accomplishment, no matter how absurd it may look to outsiders or how partial it may be, can become a foundation of our sense of self and of our sense of possibility. Losing ourselves in an all-absorbing action, we become ourselves. The hobbyist or retiree taking a course in yoga or batik, who might be easily patronized by achievers, has rocket fuel in her hands. Indeed, the beautiful paradox is that pursuing things we may do poorly can produce the sense of absorption, which is all that happiness is, while persisting in those we already do well does not. We've talked about this before in terms of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations, I think. The idea that um, you do we want our children or ourselves to achieve or do we want them to accomplish? And the guitar thing resonates with me because I just watched, it was a guitar concert of one of my children this week, and I watched as he pulled off a solo that it was, um, there was no prize for it. He had just, he'd sort of become absorbed in this, and I'd heard him practicing, and he really enjoyed it, and he wanted to show me. And there was something accomplishment that, that I saw in a 12-year-old's eyes versus the difference between that and like kind of studying for the next test. I don't know. Do you guys do you guys see this distinction, or is it or is it or is it not that? Yeah, fine of one? I mean, what I'm thinking about is less of like I guess a productive hobby uh, for our son, and more that like of course in the last few weeks before we leave the state, he's decided to get a girlfriend, and it feels like such an accomplishment. I'll be honest, like to watch this little person like have someone that they really like and he like faded love i it's know just, he it's stayed so up, perfect he stayed up till 11 p.m last night or the other night uh when they were still in school with my computer in front of him watching origami videos so he could make her a dozen origami roses oh my gosh oh and my like gosh rolled into school with them <laughs> and i'm like he's so dedicated to this you know like she has a bat mitzvah next january we're coming back for it like we're all in and, you know, he's a kid that, like, you know, gets the good grades and does it. But the pride I had from him, like, stepping into this, like, developmentally normal next stage of life, you know, a little ahead of his peers. Like, he was the only boy to ask a girl to the dance. You know, that kind of stuff was, like, really awesome to see. And it, he was so happy, which is so awesome to see. Now, he's going to be real sad very soon. <laughs> But the happiness <laughs> was so beautiful. So, oh my gosh, it'd be very interesting to be the 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 woman in Neil's life going forward. 
Oh my god, the devotion. <laughs> well, I'm like also thinking daddy. about the relationship, the eventual, eventual relationship with the wonderful, he but just, completely he just... you know, small personality of a mother he's got. How, 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 how's that going to work out? <laughs> he could just do what my sons have done, which is stay for the same girlfriends they had in Houston three and a half years ago and just never break up and it did you know, spend me, lots RJ. of money on, on airplane did. tickets. I you was know. like, you know, yeah. we are only in going into seventh grade, but I did have that hey, like, oh never my too gosh, early. oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this is a realm that is that is that is immune to this sort of achievement stuff, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, the, to ask a girl to a dance, uh, you you there's no. Um, I mean, you get some social rewards for it clearly, but you don't get. Uh, you, know, you don't get to move on to the next test, you know, it's... And it's risky. You don't, you know, you might fail. She might not want to go with you. Like, it was just like all, it's all of these things at once. And, and you do it because you want to, not because yeah. someone's telling you you need to, right? Totally. Yeah. So, it, you know, and they won the best dancer award at the middle school dance. Oh, my gosh. I mean, what? y'all, it kills me. They got a bloom. He broke out his floss. Oh, just. he's <laughs> he has got some moves. Um, I believe it. Yeah. So. I think generally speaking, there, there's a lot to say about TikTok, but I think overall it has been a positive for dancing, uh, oh, for people's totally. dance moves, for young people's dance moves. I think we're totally. going to see a whole revolution of amazing dancers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But RJ, what do you think about achievement versus accomplishment as having children who Yeah, it just both? made me think of Marshall, who's currently obsessed with two things, which is soccer and Rubik's Cube. Like, Aww. obsessed. You know, and so he'll watch, he'll get on YouTube and watch soccer videos, and then he'll watch these, like, Filipino uh, um, Rubik's Cube videos. And, like, he can't understand a word that's being said, but he's just obsessed with some 13-year-old kid who's insanely good at some multi-sided, you know, prismatic Rubik's Cube. So it is awesome. It's really cool to see that. And, yeah, it's just so nice when kids are still young enough that, like, the specter of college is not on the horizon. Yeah. I will say we had pretty different experiences of high school with our two boys around this because the school that Jackson went to in Houston, which was a great school, but it was just so achievement driven and they gave so much homework and he was up so late and worked so hard. And a few nights he was like in tears about how much work he had. And then the school our second son went to in Florida was much more kind of accomplishment driven, like longer School periods, less homework, more time to do work in class, just no APs, like no APs at all, which I think is like the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, And yet I will also say, you know, I used to think that that standardized tests were were uncoachable. That is not true. (laughs) That's so Jamie uh, worked pretty hard, actually, with both of our boys to like get our test scores up. And uh, the college counselor at our second son's school actually called my wife the day after graduation. And Jamie was like, why is she calling me? Something has gone wrong. But she actually called Jamie to see what Jamie had done to get Spencer's test scores up (laughs) so high. I mean, they were good, but they got better. So even at the end of the day, the school that feels a lot more accomplishment driven and a lot sort of kinder and gentler about the right things, I can only imagine the pressure that is on the college counseling departments of some of these, you know, private schools. Because at the end of the day, that's like all parents care, care about. Um, and that's got to be a tough thing. I feel like college is the, maybe this is totally not true at Rice. You're, all your Rice kids still feel like they've got to achieve, right? They can't accomplish. They've got to it's achieve. It's interesting because almost all of them will say, 
everyone in high school told us college was going to be so hard and we weren't going to make it. No, we no, no. Work so hard. No, and no, they're no, like, no, high school was so much harder than so college. Harder. Like, yes. I feel like they're kind of more relaxed. Like, sure, if they've got a paper or a project, but it's very rare to meet a student that's like kind of all, like the way that you're around high school students and they're just yes. intensely in it. I, I, there are a few majors that can be, like, I think architecture can be really difficult. Yeah. There's so much drawing. Engineering can be really difficult. Yeah. There's a few ones that are hard, but for the most part, if you're doing a humanities major, it's like, right. are you kidding me? Right. I have to write, I write three Settle papers this entire, exactly. <laughs> See, so, so college does feel like the first time maybe you have permission yeah. to accomplish you know, because high That's school is true. so achievement based and, yeah. and maybe well, you can just relax and enjoy yourself a little bit. I think, I mean, I'm going to do, I'm going to pull the RJ here. I'm going to push this into the religious realm because I think Ooh. no wonder you have an achievement obsessed or at least a punishing culture that people would then turn their faith in God into another achievement scheme rather than, mm. a, I mean, I genuinely believe that you know, uh, the law-fulfilling righteousness, if you want to put it in, in those terms, like sort of good works that are pleasing to God, those are accomplishment ones, not achievement ones. I mean, I think it's, if, if your spiritual life, if your moral life becomes all about checking the box or out of, you know, some kind of... Uh, yeah, self-aggrandizing thing rather than love of neighbor or love of the thing, the gift you've been given by God that you don't even really think of it in those terms. It's like a completely different language. Yeah. And yet, like, this is where we're, this is what we're, what I, at least a lot of times I feel like the deprogramming that has to happen is not necessarily, is, is yes, sometimes from a church that has, that has latched onto achievement paradigms for the sake of kind of like personal growth. But it's a culture that has, and like I, I really, I mean, I, I think that the kind of the acts of charity and kindness and compassion that that are that are actually at the fruit of the of God's grace and the Holy Spirit have much more in common with a kind of a, an a, a absorptive accomplishment mentality or simply a heart-driven, you know, right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I keep thinking of how dangerous achievement is when we kind of impart to our children that that's all that there is. Like, my cousin lives in a suburb of Chicago, affluent, and we were driving past the high school, and she was sure her kids aren't in high school yet, but we were talking about how arduous, and I sort of knew, knew this from RJ, how arduous high school can really be. She said, yeah, a couple years ago, there was this kid, and he was, you know, star of the football team, you know, really great grades, just super, super accomplished. And he and his girlfriend apparently were messing around and they took some sort of a video that was of a sexual nature and it got out. And the school pulled him into a room and there was a security guard at the school who should not have been left alone with that kid. And he kept saying like, your life is over. Like you're going to be a registered sex offender. Like your life is over. And then they called the kid's parents and they went out to meet the kid's parents. And when they got back, the kid had left the room and walked off of a parking deck and killed mm. himself. And I, I just like that. And my cousin told it to me, you know, you can tell the story. Everybody there knows. And I, I just was like, Oh my God. And it just burned in my brain. And I think about that so much now in raising children, like how much are we telling them that not just achievement is the only way, but that it's such high stakes. Mm. 
And, you know, it's not just that they don't have joy and accomplishments. It's, it's that like their life feels meaningless on some level if they don't achieve in the way that they're supposed to. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just think, I think achievements over accomplishments is so dangerous. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that it's purely by the way the culture's fault. I think this is a default mode that we kind of Im- imbibe uh, and that, or that at least we're so naturally gravitate towards because it seems to put control in our own hands. Yeah, for sure. Also, if nobody's on my side, right. if I'm alone, if I'm alone right. in the universe, you right. know, I'll, I'll, I'll always remember Dave, what Tim Kreider said at the, at the Mockingbird conference, who's like an atheist essayist. He's like, what am I doing here? I don't understand, but we love him. And he, what did he say? He said, you know, 150 years ago, Nietzsche declared the death of God. And I recognize, like, things have not gone well since then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it's been, it's been rough. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and yeah, when you take God, when you take, when there's nobody else in the universe on your side, no one looking out for you, no one who's on your side, when it's all up to you and you have to justify your own existence, like, holy moly moly, that's just, it's too much to bear. Yeah. It's too much to bear. I also think it's- and I, I think we can be accused of a sort of nihilism at Mockingbird. Like, oh, well, we don't think anybody, you know, it's like nobody else will do anything. It's a party. <laughs> and really, it's like. Can I go to that party? Well, that yeah. sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually like we really love and value accomplishments. Like it's a, and encourage each other. And like, you know, that's, that's. That's the also the fruit of the spirit in such a beautiful way. Yeah, so it's the, it's the great question of the Christian life. It's like, what do you want to do now that you don't have to do anything? Yes, and like yeah. that's going to be the thing that you do better. And it may not yeah. be. It's not an it's not an alternative road to success. Or the second it does become that, it, it ceases to be it. But I think that it, it it is the question that's worth asking: Am I doing something only to to get a grade, or what do I? What is it that I've what is where do I get that sense of absorbing kind of transformative yeah. other centeredness? I mean, because that's what they're talking about: losing yourself, thinking about other people is is kind of involved in this whole kind of accomplishment. Anyway, I guess it's just it's a it's another way to talk about the the, the dynamics that we love to talk about. And um, yeah, because I, I want to see a, I want to see my kids accomplish amazing things in the sense of the, that Gopnik is talking about. I, I, I want to do everything I can to short circuit my own telegraphing of achievement as the only barometer of success, as the ultimate yeah. barometer of success. Yeah. Or I, meaning. I, we've talked about this a lot, so I don't, we don't have to, you can cut this, but you know, when I'm struggling with this personally, because in going to Nashville, I know that there are ways and avenues by which I could do college ministry there, right? I could do the fundraising. I know what it looks like to create a program. I know how to make a successful program. Like I'm, I'm really sure of that. And achievement wise, like I'm an Episcopal priest. It looks really good. Like I, you know, all the things that go in with that, that are both of God and, you know, of me. But like, I've always wanted to teach kids like my whole life it's all I want to do and Mm. so like I'm looking at like teaching jobs and Mm. you know people are asking me what are you going to do when you get there and I'm kind of elusive if I don't know them really well because I don't want to hear what they think Mm. you know what I mean (laughs) like I don't need you to tell me that that's not what I should be doing Mm. but like I it's just it's totally always been on my list. Like I want to know what it's like to to run a classroom of like fifth graders, you know. So yeah, it's it's and definitely Sarah, I know, true for me. 
you you've talked you as a woman i know you felt often felt the pressure that you need to achieve right for, for sure. the sake of like other my parents, women well, yeah. when i used to talk about being a teacher my parents were like uh, absolutely not like <laughs> you're gonna do something that makes money you're not gonna do that and you know they loved me being a priest because there was a certain amount of an authority in it right and me having my own ministry and all this kind of stuff. i got to be at a big fancy church you know all those things but you know, there is also an ease. And now that they're gone, that I'm kind of like, <laughs> well, what is this other thing I wanted to do? Oh, wow. You know? That's so, awesome. Ask and you we'll shall see. receive. I'll I... probably be terrible at it, but I just want to try, you know, like I love middle schoolers. So, so that means when I retire, I can sell cars. There you go. Work, it, work you, at a dealership. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so you to... RJ, you kind of like a car salesman. But I mean, so. what did they say uh, though? That they... <laughs> I'm not sure how to receive that. Uh, thank you. I think I'm not going to disagree with her. The, uh, <laughs> It is, you know, but the second you start getting paid to do something, you start to like it less, I guess, or that's what they yeah. sell us. Well, let's, let's, let's uh, second to last thing. I felt like this is in our wheelhouse very much. Jason Zinnemann in the New York Times Magazine wrote an article called That's the Funny Thing About Grief, exploring why so many stand-up comedians right now are mining their grief for material. I mean, there, there are so many grief-stricken comedians these days that it invites the question, for an art form traditionally associated with punchlines and about dating and airplane food, why is it mourning again and again in America? M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. This is what he writes. He says, uh, one reason grief is an unexpectedly great subject for comedy is that in a fragmented, polarized culture, with a shrinking common collection of references, it's universal and relatable in a way that few other topics are. Even if we don't know someone who has died, we will, or as... One comic explained to his audience, we're all pre-dead. But then it gets a little bit more philosophical. He says, when someone dies, the conversations follow a tight script. Sorry for your loss. There are no words. We are all afraid of saying the wrong thing, and those suffering don't entirely know how to respond. It's a relief to hear comics not just poking fun at the stale jargon of condolences, but also demystifying the hidden world of the grieving, which can be messy and petty. The competitiveness of grief is a frequent subject to these comedians. Who suffers most? The consensus is that it's parents of children who die. But only in these shows might you hear someone weigh the levels of pain of a parent of a two-year-old versus that of a ten-year-old, as Colin Campbell does in Grief, a one-man shit show. <laughs> While it might seem counterintuitive, though, the popularity of joking about death represents a welcome shift from pessimism about comedy that was popular among performers uh, during the Trump era, these more recent comics generally share a faith that comedy helps, even if only a little. And there's a joy in the performances that takes you by surprise. Now, we touched on this a little bit in terms of Rob Delaney uh, dealing with his own, the death of his three-year-old. And I don't know about you guys, but I recently watched the uh, John Mulaney um, stand-up special all about rehab that when it came out a few months, a uh, couple weeks ago, Baby J. And it's really all about, um, maybe not grief, but loss, certainly, and addiction and recovery and the, the sort of heaviest things imaginable. There's also an admission in here that stand-up comedy is filling a different function than it used to, and it's got yeah. a broader spectrum. And I've, we've talked about it in terms of stand-up comedians really being almost pastors. Mm-hmm. But th now it's becoming like we went from never joking about grief to like 
it's it, there's becoming new like cliches about how to do it. Does this touch you guys at all? I, I, I can't believe it wouldn't, but talk to me. Well, I just want to say, first off, I get, man, I get so jealous of stand-up comedians to some degree because sometimes I think about like, what if I could just spend like a year perfecting like the most amazing one-hour sermon I've ever given in my life and then just give it over and over again to different audiences and different, you know what I mean? Like it, they are, they're modern day preachers. They are. And I'm always like, damn it, why can't I be as good as Dave Chappelle? But then I'm like, well, Peter, you also like, he just does this over and over and over and over and over again. It's the same thing. He doesn't have to give a different stand-up routine every week <laughs> for 20 minutes, you know? But no, there's 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 no doubt that yeah, they're they are modern day preachers and pastors and truth tellers and anyway, that's my first thought. But Sarah, what do you think? I mean, I think the whole country is in mourning, and so it makes sense yeah. that what's gonna reflect back to us and even in terms of, of what we think will be funny will be about mourning because everyone is mourning. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm. many people lost so many people recently. So I you know, and 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 also like Comedy is one of those beautiful places where we talk about what we won't talk about, Mm. right? And people aren't necessarily acknowledging that everyone is grieving, not acknowledging, you know, in a lot of ways that the pandemic even happened. And so comedy is like this one narrow escape we get to like access that grief comfortably, right? Under the guises of humor. And I would argue that like church is a a very similar place. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and it may, sometimes there's funny stuff that happens at church, but it's also like a, a comfortable place to, to access that, that grieving part of yourself in community, uh, which I think is what we're all looking for. They trace it back to Tignataro, to be honest with you, talking about her cancer yes. diagnosis. Yeah. The cancer stand-up show, and, I thought yeah. about she that, said, so good. Um, and you know, this, it's still, it's, it's still difficult to market something like this because she said, you know, I thought no one would want to talk about that. And, and yeah. it's hard to fill seats if they, people to come to hear you talk, cry about a cancer diagnosis. But if you actually talk about it, people resonate in incredibly deep ways and the ability to laugh at it is so, so healing. And what I love how Zinneman says that there's an unexpected almost joy about a lot of these performances that are dealing with such deep things or such heavy things that shouldn't be necessarily joyful. But of course that's where the joy is found. Um, Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I have jokes I make now that were, we bought a house and of course it's expensive to buy a house as we discussed before we came on. And, you know, I'll just say like, well, I mean, I have a death dowry, so that made it easier. And I can see the looks on people's faces. They're like, Oh my God, she does have a death dowry, but I don't want to laugh at this. And then they laugh and it's like, you know, it's a pretty uncomfortable thing, right? It blends tragic death and money, but like, that's what it is. And it, it makes me feel more honest about my situation and it makes me feel less sad and less alone in it. Mm. So, well, certainly like the sermons that I feel like I've preached that have to do with the, the really sad things tend to be the ones that resonate more deeply and that have people coming back to and walking out with better, with not just tears, but with larger smiles on their face or they're in their eyes. The, it's, uh, there is something that preachers actually know about this that maybe stand-up comedians are only learning now, wouldn't you say? Yeah, especially because, you know, preachers are always told, don't talk about yourself. And that's like all the stand-up comedians like, ever yeah. do is yeah. talk about themselves, yeah. you know, yeah. because it, it's it's a way 
Yeah, someone just getting up and sort of talking at you about grief or something. Like, give me a break. But they talk about their own grief. Then that's a totally different thing. And then also you can make it funny because it can be at your own expense. Like, yo, Tig, Tig, you look amazing. I can see, you know, you've lost so much weight. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the cancer. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, yeah, and well, and also... I've even thought as I've watched them, because Jamie's obsessed with stand-up comedy. She just like watches everything on Netflix. You know, preachers are also told, never bleed in the pulpit. You never, you know, you never want anyone to like feel feel sorry for you or which is true. But a lot of stand-up comics like come right up to that line. You know, they're they're sort of shameless in what they're willing to share about themselves, their own pain, their struggles, you know. Has, has uh, she gotten into Leanne Morgan yet? Oh my god! I, I'll have to add, probably. That, Sarah's been reposting a lot of that. My my wife so just. Um, no one Morgan, makes her laugh okay. harder. She went with some friends of hers to go I, here. It's uh, just it's un, She's unbelievable. I mean, she's very southern, I but know. she's un, one of my black friends said when I sent her a clip, she's like, I got a little nervous about what's going to come out of her mouth, <laughs> but she's very funny. She's very funny. She's like a, and the other person I keep thinking of, and I saw, I got to see her, which was such a gift here live in Houston, is Atsuko Oak. Okatsuka, who has a mother with bipolar depression and it's a huge, and she'll, she'll have sort of psychedelic or psychedelic psychotic episodes and stuff. And she married her husband also has a mother with these illnesses. And, you know, the way that she talks about their sort of the commonalities they have uh, from their childhoods and, and, you know, the importance of her grandmother who is like in her nineties taking care of her, but them all sort of having this weird little girl gang and essentially living in a garage together. I mean, it's so bleak, but it's so funny because it's so honest. Mm. You know, I, I get frustrated now with preaching that just feels didactic, like disembodied. Yeah. I'm like, okay, what's the thing that's going on with you? And I know like I probably analyze everyone now, but or find it really, or I don't want to hear a story about how you did something great. Like, that's not, uh-uh. Don't tell me about some homeless person you met. Tell me about you. What's homeless in you, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to know. Well, it's interesting. I th- you know, people think that that can be, it gets falsely characterized as sort of nihilistic. And I, uh, Nick Cave himself was saying the other day, it's like, the second you turn something like that into art, it's an act of hope. Like, it's it's a creative act. Yeah. And like, no matter no mm. matter what the person thinks they're doing, to express it and to formulate it and to study it and to think about how you're delivering something actually is an act of hope. And I think that people connect with that um, subconsciously. I also thought, you know, I'm, I've never been that big a fan of John Mulaney, but I, I loved this special. It's partly because we went to, I went to college together and I, I find like uh, I'm threatened. You went to college with John Mulaney? I'm threatened by the success. We had a casually name drop. Did you well know done. him in college? <laughs> I did not, but I definitely knew Nick Kroll, who was a friend of mine, and he's also. They all went to all these guys went to George. George, All of them went to my college, and it was it's a little bit of a strange thing. I you know here you I'm not I'm not. uh, It makes me feel bad about myself. I mean, it's like. Look, I went to college with Eli Manning, and sometimes he and I would be at the same Burger King. So, well, I just went through all of the all of the great comedians. Mike Birbiglia was there when I was there, and um, oh my wow. God, Jim Gaffigan had, had, had graduated a like couple you years have ahead not of me. Accomplished much? Yeah, I was like, you know, are they all Catholics? Gaffigan I mean, is. I no, mean, ex, either Kroll's Catholics or ex Catholics. Jewish, but he's. Uh, anyway, let's move on from that. It's it's. Uh, he's going to cut all this watching. <laughs> Why? You better not. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, yeah. So that, that happened when I was, yeah. That's very cool. Um, 
However, what I was going to say is that Mulaney has this incredible bit in there, or he, he actually, I saw him interviewed on some podcast where he was saying that his, he was, he was repeating what his shrink had said. And his shrink had said, John, there, 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 there are two people inside of you. There's the you that sort of has decent intentions and sort of wants to do the right thing and kind of is, is, is thinking about other people. And then the other person is a gorilla. And that gorilla wants to do everything in its power to uh, kill the other person. And uh, yeah. I thought that was such a funny... I mean, this is all low anthropology. This is what I, I tried right. to write a book about. And I think that we resonate more deeply and more profoundly and more unitively when we're talking about our instances of suffering and transgression and pain and you know all of these things. And that that's actually the root mm. to this sort of counterintuitively to something like healing and of course to God's grace. But let's talk about a sort of a more explicit way that that, that connection was made. And I'm going to talk about Tim Keller, the Presbyterian pastor who died oh. and has been eulogized a lot. We've eulogized him a few times on the, on, on Mockingbird and Stephanie Phillips, wonderful Stephanie who lives in Australia, but went to, uh, Tim was her pastor for a while. She wrote a wonderful piece for Mockingbird. And she said this, she said, in one of the first sermons I heard him preach, Tim said that Jesus wouldn't have been a capitalist or a socialist. And I remember thinking, excuse me, because the Jesus I know the one from Alabama most definitely hated all the same people I did. And I knew which way he would have voted. Also, he was an avid deer hunter, I think. <laughs> the idea of a God who transcended political and economic systems rather than embodying them was, I'm embarrassed to say, mind-blowing to me. And bigger than I'd ever imagined. If nothing in life is sure but death and taxes, then it's fitting that, the, that God revealed the fruit of all this gospel talk to me in a moment that occurred about a year after I'd gotten to New York. My dad's friend had done my taxes, and I owed the state about $10,000. Panicked and tearful, I immediately decided I needed to leave New York altogether. But before the suitcase was packed, a friend told me that, though this might all be a surprise to me, it wasn't to God. God was with me and would see me through it. And he surely did, not just through a different accountant who fixed everything, but through what he showed me all along the way, that when things go wrong, it's not just or always because I've done something wrong. Everything is an expression of God's grace and love, not a grade report on my behavior. He mm. is present in the good and bad and actually transcends those too. It was a shift in everything I'd believed to be true about God, and I weep as I write those words because of the understatement they are. God revealed the foundation of sand upon which I'd built everything and exchanged it for himself. The rock. She talks about the second time she interacted with Tim Keller. She said uh, she said the, it was on Twitter, which is ironic, I feel, because I would bet my Instagram account that one of the things that made Tim such a steady and scandal-free presence in the evangelical world was how much more time he spent in prayer than on social media. He did engage occasionally, though, running Q&As on Twitter about deep theological issues and his hatred of broccoli. During one of these, I asked him about Martin Luther, writing the quote, you have as much laughter as you have faith, end of quote. He wrote back that it was his favorite Luther quote. Mm. Then she sort of brings it home. She talks about uh, 
going out and needing to cry after hearing the news. She said, I cried about my time in New York, bathed now in nostalgia, a home that I've left but that remains in my heart. I cried about all the ways Jesus became real to me because of my time at Redeemer and hearing Tim Keller talk about the Iron Giant and always, always ending each sermon at the cross. I cried about the all-too-rare and inherently sacrificial vision Tim had about churches, how once they reach a certain point, it's time to divide and move rather than sit still and get famous. I cried about all the doubts we humans navigate and the way grace makes space for them, especially the ones about death. And I cried about how even with his dying words, Tim acknowledged the sorrow of death while also reaffirming his and our faith. Quote, there is no downside to my leaving, not in the slightest, he said. So these were not tears of despondency, but hope, because as Tim so often told us in his paraphrase of his beloved Tolkien, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. So yeah, I was, um, I wrote about this a little bit this past week too. I, um, I did log some hours in that church, uh, not a lot, but enough to, I would go, when I was working as a youth minister, I'd come into New York and visit my brother, and we'd often go to hear Tim Keller preach. And the single coolest service I've ever been to was he preached, and then this, the jazz band played some hymns, and then the offertory was done by a guy with a banjo that was this amazing song. And it, was, it, was, it turns out it was Sufjan Stevens, who you know has become a huge, huge deal, but this is before he even had a record deal. And I like to tell people that story to make myself look cool, uh, unlike, that is cool. unlike bleeding in the pulpit. Like cool. But I do think that's the title. This the title of this episode is Dave is cool. Dave is cool. I, yeah, I. I mean, I love that we all three. I mean, we're in New York during some of his time there. Like that's interesting to me, because you know Josh and I were like as a. I mean, we're like those weird people who we both married Episcopalians and. We're very much that was the center of our world. And I'll never forget when we moved into our apartment building, one of the neighbors, this sweet, sweet, precious Jewish woman was like, you have got to come here. Tim Keller preached. <laughs> and, you know, and then she would go on to tell us, like, surely you can take a Sunday off to Josh, right? And come here, Tim Keller preach. And we didn't know who Tim Keller was, but it was such a it was such a funny thing. Like she just insisted on that. And then his books have been super formative for me, and they've been text. Like one thing I love about Tim Keller is while I think he probably leans more conservatively than I would. He keep, he's always sort of kept, that's never been the thing for him. Hmm. And so with his work, I was able to bring a lot of that to my college students and especially the, the prodigal God. That book in particular. Just incredibly healing for a lot of my students. And for me, it's a book I can go back to again and again. And it's so like, if you've never heard of it, buy it because it's such an easy read. I never want to make somebody like Tim Keller sound like, oh, it's like he does answer deep theological questions on the Internet. But his books are really accessible. Yeah. So, yeah. It's rare, though. What what she experienced there was what I experienced. And I needed to experience it in terms of he, he, he was almost like it was. It was repetitive to the point of uh, irritating sometimes where he was always talk about Jesus is not conservative or liberal. He's not a Democrat mm-hmm. or Republican. He's not a socialist. Mm-hmm. Or, and you'd be like, okay, okay, we get it. But, you know, I mean, I was raised in the Northeast and, and it was very, it's very important to like, <laughs> to be able to know that I'm not by considering the faith, by, by at least considering the claims of Christianity, I'm not 
also, you know, that I can do that without feeling like I'm also sub- uh, subscribing to some enormous socio-political agenda. He allowed, I think he had a rare gift for making the main thing the main thing. In fact, yeah. I find, and he was part of a denomination that is a pretty conservative denomination, and, and it's like, but he was also planting churches in, in other denominations, and, and every denomination I ever talked to, people are sort of listening to him. But RJ, you, you actually, RJ sort of uh, did some training with him. Is that right, Arj? I did, yeah. Um, I did a month-long, a month-long, year-long uh, church planting internship with the Redeemer Center for Church Planting. Um, and he was, you know, he didn't teach all the classes because he's a very, very, was very busy. Um, but he taught a number of them and got to spend some time with him. And I think what's most amazing about him, a few things. One, just what an evangelist he was. Hmm. Like how many people I know, and really men in particular, who sort of thought this Christian thing wasn't really their thing for one reason or another. It was kind of a, a, a not intellectually viable, or it was a little too feminine, or who knows, just or like who who gives a shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, basically. And they're like, and then I went to hear Tim Keller, and suddenly it was like, oh, I I get it, I get why what this is about i get why this is important i get why i would want this and they became christians as a result of his um ministry and then dave you touched on this just also his uh his ecumenism you know there was a, a thursday morning men's bible uh group study that he co-taught i think with a pc usa pastor and an episcopal priest you know they sort of take turns doing it and he had strongly held convictions but he held them in a in a winsome way. Mm-hmm. And and towards the end of his career, he was criticized for his winsomeness yeah. and for not mm-hmm. taking a more strident stand on the important issues of our day, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Sorry if you agree with that critique, but I don't. He just seemed like, you know, I don't agree with everything Tim Keller has ever said, but you just did get the sense like he was doing his absolute best to be as faithful as he could to Jesus and the biblical witness, you know, but, but to do so in a gracious way. You didn't. Um, I never got the sense that you had to agree with everything that Tim, Tim Keller said in order no. for Tim Keller to love you. Like, I, there's exactly so many right. stories of yes, you know, of that. I mean, just yeah, a remarkable yes. man. And then the last thing I'll say, which is sort of strange, but I found to be hopeful because as someone who's in the same profession as Tim Keller, it can be really intimidating, mm-hmm. honestly, to, for someone to be in the presence of someone who is so good at what they do. But one thing I learned when I did my little church planting fellowship is we talked to some people who were there at the beginning. You know, when he first came to New York from kind of a rural community in Virginia and they were renting spaces at a Seventh-day Adventist church and and Tim Keller wasn't always Tim Keller. Like I heard a number of people say like, when Tim first got here, he was not a very good preacher. Mm. And he told all these stories that made no sense in the New York City context <laughs> at all. And it was like, we're not in Virginia anymore, Tim. That's you know, awesome. And it took him a while to figure out how to be a preacher and a missionary in that context. And how he also, he was kind of, I hate to use this phrase, but first to market with that stuff. You know, I guess apparently when he first came on, there were like 80 to 100 kind of campus crusade and inner varsity college workers who like immediately came to church because they were just like, please preach the gospel to mm-hmm. us, you know? And then the third thing is that what really, I think that what really put Redeemer over the top in terms of it really exploding in growth was 9-11. Yeah. yeah. It was September 11th. Like they were pretty big before that, but I think they like, 
quintupled in size mm. in the matter of a few months because in the wake of 9-11, all these people were just looking for God and seeking understanding and meaning. And Tim helped to make sense of it, you know? So I find that to be hopeful that, you know, not, not everyone can be Tim Keller, but even Tim Keller wasn't Tim Keller, <laughs> at least in the beginning. Um, but but uh, God molded him and shaped him uh, into being someone who just had a tremendous impact. Yeah. There's a, there's so, an article yeah. that the the obituary or in the New Yorker by Michael Luo, Luo talks about what happened after September 11th and you know just like the the mammoth grief you know that we're talking about that we talked about in terms of comedi- comedians and COVID I mean that was a that was a city that was really in crisis mode and deep shock state of shock and they rose to it I mean I was I was I was there I remember it and it was um it was, it was powerful it was powerful to see someone really stand on uh, the gospel at a time when, when people were asking those questions and needed the comfort and not to kind of turn it into a, um, turn it into a, a, a marketplace or turn it into a cult of personality. I mean, although he was, we talking about his name, I mean, this guy did everything he could not to become what other people became, um, you know, mm. and, and, and th- we all have a hundred names we could list of scandal, you know, to handle as pastors who, who had sort of this sort of influence, but Tim seemed to be the exception to the rule. Uh, for me, as an, as an Episcopalian, or as at least a mainline Christian, like Tim kind of got me, it, I, it got me excited about the Bible in a way that I mm. think I'd been afraid of. And I'm not just, yeah. you know, mm. in our situation, we, we have a lectionary, so we read certain parts, but we, there's lots of parts we don't read. And all yeah. of a sudden I was in this sign of foreign context and hearing all this stuff. And, and like in every case, he would sort of make it better than you thought it was going to be. And mm. and the, the gospel was always there and it was always, you know, Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And it was so powerful, but that was, that was important witness to me. This sort of, the the not the apoliticism or uh, more like the sort of Jesus not fitting into our categories in a way that was confounding and if and it, but Anne Lamott Anne Lamott had said the same thing like if God you've got God hates all the same people you do then it's probably you've made God in your own image sort of thing but he said it in a he said it in a way that I, I and I could hear and I, I think one of the reasons was. Um, and I wrote about this, is that Tim, uh, when he preached, he did no, no preacher voice whatsoever. You always no. felt he was just leveling with you, and there was a humility to it, yes. and there was, there was none of the hoo-ha that you got in a, in a more uh, theatrical church service. Now, there are, there are mm. times when I want, you know, at a funeral, sometimes I want a little more hoo-ha than just one person with a microphone, but at, in that sense, somehow he's an amazing argument for it. The directness, the unmediated. I mean, you talk about stand-up comedy being a one person with a microphone. That's what Tim Keller was, and um, he didn't have notes. Uh, he had notes, but he never looked at them. And somehow that kind of communication was it dignified the the sermon in a way that I've always have tried to emulate. And I don't know, you know, it's it's impossible to to go affectless into public speaking, but this is a man who kind of at least in, in fits and starts, accomplish that. So any other, and Sarah, I just triple down on your recommendation of the prodigal God. I think it's very hard to find the basic gospel treatises that are contemporary and exciting and accessible. 
Yeah, especially like if you're an exhausted clergy person at the end of the summer and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do for adult ed <laughs> next year for Sunday school. It's great. I mean, count- counterfeit so. gods is pretty good too. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, on that note, I I hope you guys have a great summer. I have nothing else to say. Any 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 closing thoughts? Yeah. Rest well. Rest well. Sarah, I give us money. Well. Give us money. Dave's worried. <laughs> Dave's always worried. Um, Dave is always yeah. worried. And otherwise, he wouldn't be Dave. Have a worry-free summer, Dave. <laughs> well, Sarah, I hope the move goes okay. And, Thank uh, you. It'll it'll go. RJ, so. I hope you sell lots of used cars because I know that you know you've got a natural proclivity for it. That's how I'm planning to spend my summer at a local dealership. That's right. Jamie's excited He's about it. He's doing a little yeah. internship sabbatical at Ford. Why not? Exactly. All right, you guys. Talk to you soon. All Bye. Right. All right. Love you. Have love a great y'all. summer. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.